Thank you, Judy, singing for us. What a precious reminder of the goodness of our Savior for us. Thank you, John and worship team. You've led us again this morning to our God's throne. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we will continue our look at verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning. You know, if you were to take a look through human history, you'll find two kinds of decisions. You'll find some really good ones, and then you'll find some really bad ones. In fact, my guess is, your life, my life, maybe we could even divide it accordingly. I've got a couple of really bad decisions to point out. How many of you have ever heard of a record company called Decca Records? Does that sound familiar? All right. 1962, a young British group by the name of the Silver Beatles sent Decca Records an audition tape. They passed. Five years later, the Beatles were worth over $40 million. It's a pretty bad decision, right? Pretty bad decision. How about this one? A young, aspiring writer who had an idea about a young boy learning to become a wizard. Does this story sound familiar to anybody? J.K. Rowling pitched her book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, to 12 publishing companies before one finally took her up on it. You know how much she got? The the advance she got for her first book was 1,500 pounds, roughly $2,000. Eventually, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone would sell 450 million copies. Did you know that franchise is worth, if you include all the books and all the movies, it is currently worth about $25 billion. I wonder what those 12 publishing companies think now. Yeah, there's some really bad decisions. Of course, we look at that and we think, well, you know, we could be a little bit kinder toward them. I mean, that's that's a difficult thing to be able to pick the next best thing. And undoubtedly, that's true. That is a challenging task. But let's change it. Let's say that both Decca Records and or the 12 publishing companies knew ahead of time that this, that this band or this particular book would make them millionaires many times over. And yet they still decided, no thanks. Now what would you think about them at that point? In fact, you'd look at that, that decision, that choice, and you'd think, this is the height of folly. I mean, in many ways, this is the biblical narrative, is it not? I mean, this, this is really what Scripture is doing for us. In essence, Scripture is giving us what is fundamentally a way to live life. And there are two paths. There are two choices. There are two ways. There's not a bunch of them. 
There's not a myriad number, and they're all equally good and well-informed decisions. There are two options. One leads to life and forgiveness and eternity, and the other leads to death and destruction and hell. And yet we have people every day. Every day. You know them. You live next door to them. You may be related to them. You run across them at Walmart, and indeed there may even be some of the folks here with us today, who in spite of the fact that the Bible is so clear in what is its discussion, the Bible is so clear in what is its presentation of what are these two ways, they've decided to roll the dice, so to speak, and hope in fact that the path that they're on, that's not the path of Christ, will maybe one day hopefully work out. Again, this is, this is just not the biblical picture. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, as much as any passage in the Bible presents for us what is a clear contrast between the way of Adam, the one way, the way of death, destruction, and condemnation, or the way of Christ, the way of life, of grace, of forgiveness, and of eternity. What Paul does for us in this chapter as he, as he moves out what is away from what has been more legal language about justification and salvation to, to a bit more relational language about what it means now that we have fellowship with God, we have peace with God, and, and talking about then what that looks like for us as believers and living a life of faithfulness and obedience. Verses 12 through 21, Paul really lays out this case really as a positive statement. He's he's pointing out that our real hope, the reason why you and I as believers in Jesus Christ have hope, is because of what we believe to be true about life in Christ. And in order to clarify this, in order to present this with, with clarity and absolute precision, the Apostle Paul lays out the contrast, the choices, if you will, the contrast between the life of Adam and the life of Christ. And I think there are four primary contrasts that are made here that would really encourage us to make the right choice, to say it is the gospel, it is the way of Christ, it is submitting to Christ crucified and resurrected, it is confessing our sin, trusting Jesus and Jesus alone, that the reason that is the better way is because of these four reasons. We've already looked at two. The first one we looked at is that in Adam we have sinned, and in Christ we are justified. This is the clear picture of these verses. It's it's scattered all throughout, but in particular, the very first verse of of chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. So this is the fundamental condition into which all of humanity is born. We are all born into sin. Because of our father, Adam, our first one, we are all in him. He stands as the head of humanity. And we broke down how that is possible, biblically speaking. Why it is that we bear responsibility, in essence, for Adam's sin. Then last week we looked at number two. It's not just that in Adam we've sinned. In Adam we die and are dead. And in Christ we live and have life. Really, this is perhaps the bigger deal. The reason why we are born into sin is because we are born dead. And we really reflected on this last week, and this is such a critical concept, that really what we inherit from Adam, yes, is a sin condition, but the reason that's a sin condition is because we inherit from him death. 
We are born out of fellowship with God. That is how the Bible defines spiritual death. The, the, the fellowship Adam enjoyed with God was severed because of sin, and that's what's passed down then into the human race. So we are born without spiritual life. This is why we sin. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 that we read at the beginning, you saw at the beginning of the service, we are born dead in our trespasses and sin. So being connected to Adam, that means sin, that means death. But in Christ, not only are we justified, we are declared to be right in God's eyes, but we also have the promise of life. Life now and life forevermore. Well, let's look at number three. The third contrast is that in Adam, we are condemned. But in Christ, we are righteous. In Adam, we are condemned, but in Christ, we are righteous. Look with me beginning in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now just hold on to the language of grace. That's actually going to be the last point. All right, so... Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So, so Paul, Paul, again, offers us this clear and compelling contrast between the two. And you'll notice how he introduces this stuff. He's saying, but the gift is not like the trespass. He says that three different times in this text. The gift is not like the trespass. What happened in Adam, though Adam and Christ are a type, Adam is a type of Christ, in that what Adam did stands for a whole, and what Christ did stands for a whole, what they did is radically different. In Adam, the gift that comes through him, the, the offense results in what he describes as condemnation. You notice the language of judgment and the language of condemnation. Now, this, this is one of the reasons why it is so important that we spend our time thinking biblically, that we talk about things biblically. I, I don't know what may be going on in other churches around the world, around the country, my guess is there's not a whole lot that have points that use the word condemnation. I mean, that's not the most encouraging word you've ever heard, is it? You don't come, well, maybe some of you have been coming long enough to know what your preacher may preach, all right? But I mean, you don't really come thinking, wow, I just loved hearing that word about condemnation. I mean, it's a difficult concept because really it means exactly what you think it means. To be condemned, and here's the worst part of it, to be condemned means I have no standing before God. I have no standing before God. Do you realize how awful that is? Do you, do you realize how terrifying that should be? To be condemned, to be judged. See, here's where people misidentify sin. Here's where people get this thing wrong. The truth is, sin almost never brings immediate consequences. Sometimes it does. But very often it does not. Sin promises to give you gratification now and delay the consequences for later. It does a great job of masking consequences. 
so that you don't really think about the consequences. So the biblical worldview here is critical because, because Paul comes along and says, here's fundamentally what's coming down the road for those who live, continue in trespass, sin, and death. It is condemnation. It means when you leave this life and enter into the next and stand before God, you have no recourse. You can make no plea. There's not going to be a second opportunity. It's not like after you die, you'll get to stand before God and say, Aha! Now I get it. Alright, all that stuff I said uh, when I was alive, I take it all back. Yes, I believe. It's not an option. It's not an option. When I stand before God after I leave this life, that is what will determine my fate. Whether or not I submitted to His Gospel here. Because to be an Adam not only means that I'm in sin, it not only means that I, I'm living death, separated from God, but it means when I enter into the next life, what I will receive is judgment and condemnation. I will be cast out of God's presence forever. I'll have no standing. I have no recourse before Him. This, this should be devastating. But again, sin just has such an uncanny way of keeping us from seeing real consequences. Promises an immediate gratification. Consequences come later, so be it. Biblical worldview, however, says yes, there may be patience and endurance required now, but the end game, the benefits to come, are beyond your wildest imagination. Because Paul says that in Christ is condemnation, but in, I mean, in Adam is condemnation, but in Christ is life, righteousness, and justification. I mean, that's what he had just said there at the end of verse 16. The free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. In other words, Adam did one thing, and it condemns an entirety of humanity. But Christ did one thing, and it covers a multitude of sins. Now notice how he goes on to describe this in verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So again, that's fairly much repetition there. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Listen, church, the contrast is pretty clear. I mean, the choice is pretty obvious. On the one hand, there's condemnation. On the other hand, there's life. There's righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? We've talked a lot about this already. But to be righteous means I have standing with God. I have right standing with Him. I can go right before the very throne of grace. That in Christ, I have the right to be in His presence. In Adam is condemnation, but in Christ is life, hope, righteousness, forgiveness, Now, I do want to address an issue here. You may have thought this when we read it. You may be thinking, how much longer is this going to be? And you weren't thinking anything. All right, but if you were thinking the other, verse 18, where it says, so as one man's offense, judgment came to all. Then it says, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Now, normally at this point, I like to insert a little bit of snarkiness. I know, it's a shock, right? And I will say... What does the word all mean in Greek? It means all. Except here. 
All right. Okay. Now, now the reason I say that is because you read that and you think, oh, okay, preacher, smarty pants. Here we go. Let's see what kind of theological chops you've really got. It's just you just said you said it. You said it for weeks. And I don't even know if you'll ever finish, but you've been saying it for weeks. On the one hand, we're all dead in Christ. I mean, dead in Adam. So if we're all dead in Adam, we're born this way. All right. We all come into life dead, then does that not mean that what Jesus did on the cross, then that solves the problem for all of us? In other words, doesn't that mean, Mr. Theology Britches, doesn't it mean that what we end up getting, just as we get death from Adam, does that mean we get life from from Christ? Doesn't that mean everybody gets saved? Isn't that what verse 18 is teaching? I've been asked this question. Isn't that what the logical explanation would be? That if the one applies to all, that the other applies to all. All right, so we've got two issues here. First, this would mean that Paul is a bit schizophrenic. All right? Because in verse 17, he had just said, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So already he's limited the impact of the work of Christ to those who receive it. Then if you look at verse 19, For as by men, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And we know through what the rest of Romans has said. There's nothing about Romans that gives us license to say Everybody's going to become a Christian. Everybody's going to be saved. That event, now this is called universalism, right? The idea, well, we're all going to get to heaven. One day God's just going to let the whole lot of us in. Now hopefully you immediately sense what is the injustice in that concept. Some folks like to say it's unfair for God to judge people. I would argue just the opposite. It would be the height of injustice for God not to judge sin. It would be the height of injustice to do that. All right? And we know through what the rest of the New Testament says. No, faith comes through Christ. It's, it's only in Him that I, can, that I can be saved. And that indeed, there are many who will not believe. So is Paul just being sloppy here? Is he contradicting himself? No, even though the word all means all, here's the context in which he's using it. He's meaning it in terms of all kinds of people. It's not that every single person will believe or will become saved. It's that people of all kinds. All right. So this has been a big deal in Romans, that the gospel is not just for Jews. It's not just for Gentiles who become Jews. All right. The gospel is for the nation. In other words, the gospel is for all people. So there can be people from all walks of life that enjoy the benefit of the gospel. He's not saying everyone's going to get saved. He is limiting here his use of the word all to mean all kinds, all nationalities, Greek, Jew, slave, free. Uh, That's consistent with what the rest of the New Testament has taught. This is not something that's suggesting that everybody will eventually get to heaven. In fact, the context is just the opposite. And I know this this is a hard thing to think about. But I don't know how we can ignore it. I don't know how we can ignore it. Truth is, there are people now living their lives under God's condemnation. And they may not even know it. As soon as they step out of this life and into the next, 
that condemnation will be eternal. Eternal. Pastor, that's a hard word. I know. It's not mine, though. It's not my idea. It's not something I've conjured up. It is the consistent testimony of Scripture that what happens in this life is indeed what determines the next. It's all about who you're in. Adam? Christ. In Adam? Not only sin and death, but condemnation. Christ? Life? Forgiveness? Justification? Righteousness. Let me give you one more. All right? The last one. I told you we'd finish this today. I said last week there was about a 90% chance. All right, so it is now at 100. Number four. In Adam, sin abounds. This is my favorite one if I'm allowed to have favorites, all right? In Adam, sin abounds. In Christ, grace abounds more. Grace abounds more. I absolutely love the way this language unfolds. In fact, you see it. Go back to verse 15. All right, you see it. We see it almost right from the beginning. After Paul had given us this introduction to Adam and what happens in Adam in verses 12 through 14, that there is sin, there is death, death reigns. Then it says this in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. Stop there for a second. The word free gift. In some ways, that sounds odd, doesn't it? A free gift. What else should a gift be? Right? What else should a gift be but free? So what's he doing here? In other words, he's, he's making us, he's giving us two words. He could have just said, but the gift, in fact, he will say that later. The gift is not like the offense. But at this point, verse 15, he adds the word. But the free gift. I mean, ideally, a gift should be free. But then if you think about it, you realize, have you ever received a gift that in essence was not free? Anyone? You don't want to admit it because they're next to you? All right. Yeah, you know, there, in other words, there, there, are, there are gifts, right, that are not necessary. That, that does not mean what it just sounded like it meant. All right, so erase all that statement. Okay. Have you ever been given a gift from someone knowing they expect something in return? That's a gift. But is it a free gift? Well, no, it's not. There's an expectation that something will be given in return. How about this? This is the best example of it. You ever seen the TV preachers? And some of them are fine, all right? But mm, I would say 99% of them are not, all right? Really, it's like 1% of the TV population is worth listening to. That may even be optimistic all right but the majority of them have some means of fundraising and what do they do at the end of their show you know whatever they've done they will then come on and they will say for a donation of whatever fifty dollars two hundred dollars sometimes it's a thousand dollars for a donation of a thousand dollars we will send you a free gift now they have to do that for tax purposes all right that's what they have to do i saw one not long ago was Rod Parsley, I don't mind naming names, by the way. Rod Parsley, he's a heretic, doesn't preach the truth, doesn't preach the gospel. All right? So if you're listening to Rod Par- Parsley, there's another one to add to the list. Stop it. Okay? All right. I don't mind name. He doesn't care. He doesn't- anyway, so I- but I don't mind naming names. Paul does in his letters, so I've got the freedom to do so. All right. Because here's what he did. He said he had laid, he had laid on, a- on a series of prayer cloths. All right? He laid on them. And then here's what he said at the end of his show. 
Send me a donation of $250 and I will send you a piece of the cloth I laid on. That sounds really creepy, doesn't it? I mean, does anybody else hear that and think, that's weird. All right, that's weird. But uh, he, he sold thousands and thousands of them. People thinking they'll get a special blessing because he laid out on top of this stuff. That, if that's the case... Folks, i got all kinds of stuff I want to sell you. All right, I mean, if that is the case, you all just line up right over here. i got all kinds of things, All my whole family. All right, all of us have laid on stuff. And so you can. I, there's just all kinds of blessing coming your way. We'll pay this building off in no time. I mean, what a ridiculous notion, all right? So in other words, the reason Paul says this is because indeed some gifts are not free. When he says, but the free gift, that means God's gift of salvation. Not only does it does it come without strings attached, this means God's not doing it because He thinks He's going to get something out of it. God merely does it. He doesn't do it because He's looked down the path of human history and thought, yeah, He's going to be a good fellow. Yeah, she's going to be a good gal. Let's save her. No, it is a free gift from God. It is freely given of His own grace, of His own free will, all right? Of His own desire, of His own sovereignty. God has said, these these are the ones I will give it to. And it is a free gift. There are no strings attached to it. But Paul's not done describing it. Notice what he goes on to say. But the free gift is not like the offense. He says, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God. Don't you love that phrase? Much more the grace of God. And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now you might say, why is that the case? Why is it that through the one man there is sin, but then through the other man there is an abounding of grace? Notice how he describes it at the end of the passage. Beginning in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So understand what he's setting up here. Because he's already talked about the law, and he gives us an idea here of why the law was so important. The law, now get this, and this is really important, especially if you have kind of this false notion that the law was used by God to save people in the Old Testament. That is not. God never intended the law to be used that way. And in fact, Paul is countering what would have been the the modern Jewish notion of his day of the law. That the law was a means of salvation. It was not. God never designed it that way. The law was always a means of unveiling the human condition. The law tells me what I am. The law shows me how when God says He's holy, it shows me how unholy I am. The law is indeed a tool. It is a diagnostic tool, so to speak, for spiritual unhealth. The law is what the great physician applies to my life and says, yes, you're sick. You're you're deathly ill. And the law is what exposes that. So that even before the law, while men still sinned and death still reigned, as Paul has made abundantly clear, when the law came, now it's not that when the law came people started to sin more than they did before. It just became more acute. It became more obvious. It became clearer that now somebody is 
is really sinful and disobedient and unholy. I would liken it to the to the difference between, say, the first x-ray that was ever developed and modern 3D imaging technology. Uh, let me ask you, let, let, let's say you have some kind of disease, some kind of medical issue, and you use the very first x-ray that ever came along. I don't know what that would be, all right, but let's say you use the very first x-ray that ever came along compared to the most recent innovation, again, in 3D imaging technology. Now, are you less sick under the old x-ray because you can't see as much that's wrong with you? Does that make you less sick? Well, no. Does it make you more sick that somebody can now see better what's going on inside of you? Well, no. Same level of sickness. Now you just understand it better. In a sense, you could say that your disease abounded. In other words, it became more obvious. It rose to the top. There is something that becomes clearly identifiable as a result of better technology. In a sense, this is what Paul is saying here about the law. The law serves as modern 3D imaging technology. The law, when put over your life, clearly demonstrates just how much you abound, how much I abound in sin. This, by the way, is why the gospel begins with very bad news. The good news of the gospel begins with very bad news. Because first, I need to be adequately assessed for what my condition really is. And so Paul's saying this is what the law does. The law comes along and shows, yes, sin is abounding in you. When I look at the law, when I look at God's expectations of holiness, when I look at the thousand commands that are even in the New Testament, by the way, do you know the New Testament has 1,000 commands in it? Even when I look at that, I've even said this more than once, even when I look at Jesus' simplest command to me, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Does anybody in this room really think you do that very well? In other words, Jesus boils down all the law to two of them, and I'm terrible at those two. Even that exposes me for what I really am. Do I really love God with all my heart? I love him with some of my heart. Sometimes. More times than others. I know you think, oh, you're a preacher, you're saying that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you'd have to give the same testimony. Mind, soul, strength, really? Do I give everything in me to loving him all the time? What about loving my neighbor as myself? I love me as myself. I'm good at that. That's not a command, though. I wish that were a command because I'm great at that. All right? But it's not. So this, this is what the law does. It exposes it. And this, by the way, is necessary because then what happens? When I see myself for what I really am in light of what Scripture says, in light of what Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 says for all those who are in Adam, when I see all of that, when I see God's radical and immense holiness, when I see His absolute glory, when I see Him like Isaiah, high and lifted up, when I hear the seraphim cry, holy, 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 when I think like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm an unclean man, and I live among a people of unclean lips, when I understand who I am in my very heart, in my very essence, and I see a Savior on that tree dying in my place, bearing God's wrath in His body, rising from the dead, and that God in His grace says, what Jesus did is sufficient to save you from all of your horrendous and horrid sin, then that just only helps me see what abounding grace God has given to me. I mean, this is a stunning, stunning portrait. But I don't understand that grace if I don't understand the sin. And this is what this does. In Adam, sin abounds. But the good news is, is that in Christ, 
Grace abounds more. So here are your options, church. Go on to the next slide. Hopefully this will come up. Is there a chart up there? So let, let's break this down then into this, these simple terms. Here are your options. There are two ways. There are two paths. There are two teams you can be on. There's Adam and there's Christ. And Adam, sin, death, transgression, trespass, offense, judgment, condemnation, reign of death, made sinners. How's that sound? They're getting a kickball team together. You want to be on Adam's team? All right, how's that sound? Does that sound like a good one to be a part of? What about Christ's team? Free gift, grace, justification, abundance of grace, gift of righteousness, reign in life, justification of life, made righteous, grace abounding. This is what Paul does in this text. These are the options. In Adam or in Christ. So now that comes down to us. What's the nature of our relationship? With Adam or with Christ? So again, the problem is we're all born into Adam. But God in His goodness extends to us a way. I know this sounds a bit corny, but a way to change teams, alright? That is just all that there is to it, is a way to change teams. We don't have to be in death. We don't have to be in condemnation. We don't have to be in sin. There is the hope of eternal life. And it comes in believing the gospel. So, so just a couple of then of encouragements. We'll have a time of invitation. And however the, the Lord may bring His Word to bear on your life, I would encourage you to be submissive to it. One, there could be somebody here who doesn't know Christ as a Savior. The stakes are high here. This is serious. There's no more serious thing in your life than to know for certain where you stand, on which, to which team you belong. Because this not only determines life now, but it determines life forevermore. And my appeal then to anybody here is that you would confess your sin Confess Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. Ask God to forgive you based on what Christ has done. That you trust in Christ and Christ alone. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your own power and your own ability. Know that in Him and Him alone is found grace and forgiveness. And you can be forgiven today. Trust in Christ and His gospel. I'll be down front if you'd want to know more about that. I'd be glad to talk with you. Even after the service, I'll be right up front. I would love a chance to talk with you more about what it means to believe the gospel. Would you, would you submit to that today? But let me, let me ask you as a believer. And my, my hope and prayer is then is that most everybody here is indeed that. That you find yourself uh, in, on the, the right team. First, let me ask you, so if you're in Christ, to use the sporting analogy, forgive me for those of you who don't like it, all right? How much time are you spending running the plays of the other team? I mean, look, look at what it means to be an Adam. When, when you look at your life, I mean, why, why would I want my life then to be characterized by the things that are in Adam? I need to take a very careful evaluation of my heart, of my mind, of the, my even, even the things I do intentionally, maybe even some things I do unintentionally. Am I, am I forming the right kind of habits that participate with the right kind of truth? In other words, when I look at my life, am, am I engaged in the actions which are most consistent with Adam or most consistent with Christ? It's forming and fashioning how I look at life. We need to carefully consider what it is that we're doing. If I am in Christ, then I need to understand God, through the Spirit, has given me what I need in order to live in Christ. This, by the way, is what chapter 6 is all about. This is what chapter 6, and really 7, is all about. But let me also give you one other encouragement, church. This is to the believer. 
this should shape your view of lost people. In other words, those who are not believers, this is what should shape your view of them. This is what they are. This is the condition they find themselves in. And I say this because I need to remind all of us, especially in a culture that can be so politically heated, lost people are not your enemy. They're not your enemy. I know that's hard. Because I know you hear a lot of people say a lot of things, especially on the side you don't agree with. Chances are, as a side, I don't agree with either. All right, so I understand. I understand it's frustrating. It's hard to hear people who just want to seem to dismantle a culture uh, that has existed in this country for so long. But understand this. Those folks are not your enemy. They are dead in Adam. They are separated from God. They don't have life. They don't have wisdom. They don't have knowledge. What else are they going to do but to be sinful and rebel against God? That is their nature. I am not an enemy of the sinner, but I am an enemy of the ideology and philosophy and concepts that drive them. We need to keep these two things separate, church. And we also need to be mindful that the only solution then is the gospel. Church, my mission, my mission is not to just transform politics or education or finance or culture or even politics. Our mission is simple. It is not about this kingdom. It is about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it is about forming and fashioning the hearts of men and women to follow after the true Lord of the universe. And that's Jesus. Listen, if this text doesn't motivate us to evangelism, it should. Because again, this they won't know unless somebody tells them. Now, make no mistake about it. They'll view you as the enemy. They will view you as the enemy. Undoubtedly, they do. They label us hate groups. If they knew who we were, they'd label our church one, by the way. Because of what we believe about certain key ideas that are stated in Scripture that we believe long before they became politically significant. All right? They will hate us. Jesus warned of that. But what's His expectation of us toward them? Love? How do you love them? By condoning? Nope. By preaching the gospel. This is what Romans 5 does for us. Helps us see lost people for what they really are. And I hope and pray motivates us to sharing the one means by which they can get out of death, judgment, and condemnation. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray. After I pray, then this time will be open. As we sing together, perhaps the classic hymn of the faith. As we sing of God's abounding and amazing grace. I encourage you to respond as the Lord will leave. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We do thank you for its clarity. We thank you, God, for the way it informs uh, what our view should be of who we were before we were in Christ, of who we are now that we enjoy abounding grace, uh, of who those are who find themselves still in Adam. God, that you would continue to use this word uh, to form and fashion us into the people you've designed us to be. Have your way in us now as we give our lives back to you in obedience and surrender, that it would all be for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.